for the next eight weeks and for a total of 32 weeks this year. We're going to be sitting beside the Corinthians as they listen to the letter that Paul had written to them. So it would be a good idea, if you haven't already, to grab your Bible, open it up to the book of 1 Corinthians. If your Bible has a ribbon, I don't like to brag, but mine's got three. (laughs) You can put it in there. It's going to be there a fair bit this year. I know some of you have also gone ahead. I know, I think Kurong had a special on for a little while where you could buy just the single letter of the, um, the, the letter that was written to the Corinthian church, the first letter, and you could buy just that on its own in a little paperback, and it's got some spare stuff. I think Kat's got one over there somewhere, and um, you can get them online. That would be also a great way to follow along this year and just sort of capture your thoughts, a little notebook which has specifically got the text of 1 Corinthians in it and some places to write notes. Um, they're pretty inexpensive. Some of this letter will be hard to listen to. Um, I think even harder to actually really hear and probably even hard to accept some of this letter. Some of it's going to be confronting, maybe even a little bit embarrassing. There are going to be weeks where I will give parents some warning. (laughs) Next week... We're going there. Um, But I I wholeheartedly believe that the Spirit of God has a work to do in us. I'm not even speaking generally here, in us, Raymond Terrace Community Church. We're a church that is far removed from the church that met in Corinth during the first century and far removed from the church that... Paul penned these letters too, but they're just as needed. I think they're just as powerful and just as transformative as as they were two centuries ago. But before we read from 1 Corinthians, this is where your ribbon will come in handy, I want you to read about the birth of of this church. So keep some type of marker um, in 1 Corinthians and flip back over to the book of Acts. And we're going to read a little passage from Acts chapter 18. Um, Paul visited the city of Corinth during his second missionary journey. So the, the book of Acts that um, Luke recorded records a series of big trips that some of them took numerous years for Paul to make and a a team of other people that were with Paul often. And they would travel through areas and they would share the message about Jesus Christ being the long-awaited Messiah. Paul would often do that amongst Jewish people to begin with. And usually when they got upset at him, he would say, well, no dramas, there's plenty of other people to talk to about this. And he would um, tell anyone that would listen. And so let's read from Acts 18, starting from verse 1. This is during Paul's second missionary journey. And we'll pick it up, chapter 18, verse 1. After this, 
He left Athens and went to Corinth, where he found a Jew named Aquila, who was a native of Pontius, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. A lot of names in there, a lot of people traveling all over the place. But here they are in Corinth. Paul came to them, and since they were of the same occupation, tent makers by trade, he stayed with them and worked. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade both Jews and Greeks. Now, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself to preaching the word and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. When they resisted and blasphemed, he shook out his clothes and told them, your blood's on your own head. I'm innocent. From now on, I'll go to the Gentiles. So he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God, whose house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, believed in the Lord along with his whole household. Many of the Corinthians, when they heard, believed and were baptized. The Lord said to Paul in a night vision, don't be afraid, but keep on speaking and don't be silent, for I'm with you and no one will lay a hand on you to hurt you because I have many people in this city. He stayed there a year and a half teaching the word of God among them. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack against Paul and brought him to the tribunal. This man, they said, is persuading people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. As Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or of a serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to put up with you Jews. But if these are questions about words, names, and your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge on such things. So he drove them out of the tribunal, and they all seized Sosthenes, the leader of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribunal. But none of these things mattered to Gallio. <laughs> After staying for some time, Paul said... I told you at the beginning of the service, don't wreck this. <laughs> and he said, uh, no promises. <laughs> Thanks, mate. Acts 18 records the birth of a church in Corinth. I mean, when you read that through, it seems pretty matter-of-fact, the way that Luke records it. Um, 
Paul arrived. Paul met with this other guy that happened to be the same trade as he was, a, a canvas worker, a tent maker. And so they said, oh, let's just um, hang out. We'll work together, help each other out a little bit. And on the weekends, Paul would go and share the gospel, right? He would go to the synagogue to where the Jews would gather on the Sabbath. And then he had some friends arrive and um, they were sort of helping support Paul and that allowed Paul to not be at work during the week so often and he just dedicated all of his time to just telling everyone that could. Then the Jews got upset, right? And they said, hey, we, um, we don't really like the way that you're talking about Jesus and this coming Messiah. And so he said, well, no problem. I'm going to go and talk to all the Greek-speaking people. Now, Corinth... Um, Actually, a little bit later today, it became the capital of the Roman Empire for that region, right? It was like a, a regional capital. Corinth was an incredibly important city in the Roman world. It was a, a real center of trade. So there was um, shipping trade and land trade that all crossed here. So there was, it was a massively multicultural city. Uh, I was looking at some archaeological maps of the ancient city of Corinth. It would have looked a little bit like when Paul was there. There was something like eight or nine temples to different gods spread around in different parts of the city. Like, I mean, you could just sort of choose your own adventure when it came to religion, right? A little bit like it is today. What do you want to believe in? Well, what suits, right? What sort of God do I want? And this is the sort of city that Paul was in. Now, it's interesting as you read through the book of Acts, sometimes he just arrives at a city, he might spend a weekend there or five days there or a very short period of time there. The text here says that he ended up staying there for at least 18 months, a year and a half it said he stayed there. And then down in verse 18, it says after staying for some time, so whether or not that was a bit more time, Paul ended up saying farewell and moved on. But for at least 18 months, Paul spends time in the city of Corinth, this multicultural, uh, multi-theological, um, sort of mixed-up, religious type of environment, but it was a wild city, right? This is where the sailors came. <laughs> this was where there were whole religions dedicated. The way that you worshipped was by joining yourself with a temple prostitute. That was your worship experience. This was a city that, that gave itself to pleasure. The word hedonistic, the, the hedonists, the ones who, who made pleasure their highest goal. This was Corinth, this was their capital. I've had a fascination with this church for almost 20 years reading about it, thinking about it. And Paul's letter to them, you can flip back to the, the letter of 1 Corinthians, Paul's letter to the church in Corinth is, is structured quite differently to many of his other letters that he writes to other churches in other places. Normally, he spends about half his letter um, building up a theological foundation for the gospel, You'll find this true about most of the letters that Paul writes. And then the second half of the letter, he starts to explore the practical implications of our belief 
How does the gospel affect the way that we believe and then how we live? But it doesn't happen like that in this letter. Instead, it kind of reads like Paul has a little notebook beside his bed or his table where he's going to write this letter to the church in Corinth. And it's kind of like he's got a little notebook with bullet points all in it, all the different topics that he needs to address. There's a long list of things that he needs to deal with. And um, more than often, he's going to be correcting some misunderstanding of the gospel or misapplication of the gospel that was working itself out in the lives and the behaviors of these Christians back in Corinth. I think to be fair, although this church started really promisingly, very well under Paul's leadership, we can read, not even between the lines, in black and white, in your Bible, you can read, this church was highly dysfunctional. Highly dysfunctional. Which makes his introduction at best intriguing, but really quite surprising. It's why I've called today a surprising encouragement. Now, I'm not sure how familiar you are with the letter to the first Corinthians. I would encourage you, if you use a, a Bible um, app like, say, Dwell or one of those Bibles that even read it to you, if you're in the car somewhere, takes, I know I did it this the other day, um, the Dwell Bible reading app, for those of you who use that, I, I really recommend it to you, uh, takes just over an hour to have somebody else read you the letter of 1 Corinthians. Um, you might be able to read it faster if you just sat down to read it yourself, but I like hearing the Bible read to me. Um, when the, the church in Corinth gathered, just the, maybe the, the Sunday after Paul's letter arrived to them, th that's how they would have heard it. Someone would have got up and said, hey, everybody, um, do you remember Paul? And they would have said, yeah, we love Paul. Some of them said that much louder than others. And... They said, we, he sent us a letter. And they were like, oh, sweet. It's going to be so good to hear from Paul. <laughs> they didn't know what was in the letter yet, right? I think it got a bit embarrassing that Sunday. But they would have heard Paul's letter, somebody reading it to them. So I want to encourage you, grab a Bible reading app on your phone if you've got a, one of those supposedly smartphones and get, the, get it to read it to you when you're driving somewhere or at home you know, whatever you're doing, you can be washing up or doing something else and having, having someone read to you this letter. It'll take about an hour or so. And if you do that, the vast majority of the content of this letter is challenging and difficult and, it, and describes things that are going on in this church. Like there was a guy there who was having an affair with his mother-in-law and it wasn't a secret. In fact, Paul says that most of the church saw it and thought that it was something to celebrate because it was so progressive. Sounds again like something that could happen today, right? Yay you, you're so brave, good on you. And the church was celebrating stuff like this, right? We're going to get to some other stuff over the course of this year that is just going to be, you sort of think, how can that happen, right? And as we understand more about the church in Corinth, the introduction becomes more and more surprising. 
Let's read it together. Just the first nine verses is what we're going to focus on today. 1 Corinthians. I'm going to read from the Christian Standard Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, called an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4. I always thank my God for you because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus that you were enriched in him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. You were called by him in the fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now, that is a really surprising introduction to a church that was falling apart. Infighting, dysfunction, sexual immorality factions so surprising I want to just focus on a little bit before we jump into the rest of this letter maybe if you're not too familiar with the letter you might be thinking what's the big deal right it's down to pretty stock standard for the way that Paul might start a letter it doesn't actually sound that different to most introductions in the New Testament But it is surprising when you realise that Paul is about to switch gear in a big way and speak quite forcefully and directly to this church. I mean, at one stage, he says to them, listen, I'm speaking kindly to you in this letter. It doesn't always read like that. And he says, in fact, I'm, I'm planning to come see you soon, so would you rather me get this out of the way in the letter or would you rather me bring a big stick when I come to visit you? He literally says that. The fact that he begins with encouragement surprises me a little bit. But if we look at this encouragement closely, I think that you'll see that it is the best type of encouragement there is. And he does a couple of things through this. The first thing that I want you to notice is that he lays, in the the very outset of this letter, he lays a gospel foundation that will carry all the way through the rest of this letter. So although there's a bunch of topics, and this series is going to sound a bit topical at times, we're going to talk about specific things, we're going to talk about singleness, we're going to be talking about marriage, we're going to be talking about sexuality, we're going to be talking about friendships, we're going to be talking about the way, the way that we treat one another in this church. So it's going to sound topical, but this letter is not a disjointed series of ideas that Paul was just getting off his chest. 
This is about how the gospel works itself out in community. And here, in the introduction, he lays a gospel foundation. Paul, called as an apostle of Christ Jesus by God's will, and Sosthenes, his co-worker in the gospel that was with him, they co-wrote this letter, to the church of God at Corinth. Now listen to what he says about them. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Now sanctified is a, a word meaning made holy, set apart for God, shaped by God. The series of growing, that, that process that you're experiencing as a Christian where you're growing into the likeness of Christ, that the Spirit of God is at work in you, you know, knocking off the sharp edges and the, the rough bits and, and molding you and making you more and more to look like Jesus. That process, you know what it's called? Sanctification. Paul writes to this dysfunctional bunch of Christians in Corinth and he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. Think, really? And he places them with all the other Christians everywhere else. He says, with those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ as our Lord, both their Lord and our Lord. Paul's laying a foundation of the gospel and he's reminding them, even in this, he's reminding us, even in this introduction, the gospel is at work. And look, all sorts of dysfunction can exist. We know that, don't we? Even from our own lives. We don't have to look over at the Corinthian church and say, what a bunch of screw-ups. We would never do that. But Paul looks at them, even though he knows everything that he wants to write to them about. Right? He's got his bullet point list sitting beside him. And he says to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called as saints. That's what the gospel does to broken people. It's what, it's what the good news of Jesus Christ does to sinners. It reorders, re-identifies them, stamps them with a new brand. Made whole. Saints to God. Set apart. No one better, no one worse. Christians all over the world calling on the name of Jesus and not one single one of us can say, well, we are better because look at what we've done. Paul's saying, no, we are Christ because of what he has done. Grace to you. There's that word, grace to you. And peace from our God, Father, Lord. I think even in those opening three verses, Paul sets the tone for the heart of this letter. This is a book about where our true identity rests. So much of what Paul is going to address, even though it's topical in nature, even though it's dealing with specific issues or sin or dysfunction, ultimately finds its root in where is our identity? Who are we? 
Where is the security of our acceptance? Where is that found? Where, where must our confidence sit? These are all the issues that Paul is going to really drive to the heart of throughout this letter. And we can see it right here in the opening three verses. And then we get that beautiful change in the introduction, I always thank my God. Paul often does this in his letters. I always thank my God. Paul was a, a guy that was full of thanksgiving. He, he loved to look at any circumstance, and a little bit like Matt, you reminded us this morning, right? He's in jail, in you know, the letter to the Philippians. He's in jail, and he says, hey, I want to remind you that this is not as bad as it looks, right? You're not as bad as it looks. You're in jail, mate, right? And not a nice jail. Probably a hard and filthy Roman jail. He says, look, it's not as bad as it looks. In fact, it's even better than it looks because it's advancing the gospel. And so give thanks. Paul looks at the church in Corinth and he goes, it's not as bad as it looks. <laughs> I give thanks for you. I always give thanks for you guys. Now remember, Paul is already loading up. He knows what he's about to start writing about. But he begins by saying, hey, when I look at you, I can't help but give thanks for what's happening in your life. I'd ask myself when I was thinking through this, how... What if, what if I'd written that letter? Now, years ago, someone said to me, if you've got something negative to say to somebody, always start with a positive thing, all right? I, um, I really like... And we sometimes have to work hard to come up with that positive thing, don't we? Come on, be, let's be honest. I'm convinced that... Paul's not doing that. Paul's not sort of trying to sweeten the deal a little bit before he comes in with the hammer. Paul is genuinely looking at what God has done and what God is doing in their life. And despite the mess that he can see, despite the dysfunction that he knows needs to be dealt with, Paul says, I always thank my God for you. Why? There's a because in the text. Can you see it? I always thank my God for you. Because of the grace of God given to you in Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in Him in every way, in all speech and all knowledge. In this way, the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ. He will also strengthen you, right, to the end, so that you will be blameless. Really, the church in Corinth, blameless. But Paul says, I'm going to thank God for you because of what God's doing in your life. He's strengthening you to the end so that you will be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, Right? You were called by him into fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul was overwhelmed with thankfulness for a dysfunctional church. 
Because they weren't just some sort of problem to be solved in Paul's mind. They were his friends. They were his children in the faith. Many of these people he had led to the Lord. He'd sat with them and heard them weeping in repentance and he'd shared the good news of Jesus with them and he'd walked with them in the early days of their growth as a disciple of Jesus and they were his friends. He knew them and he loved them. He knew that there were struggles and he knew that there were challenges and he was very aware of their shortcomings. He knew about the unrest that was festering in the life of this church. Paul could see the destructive nature of sin as it was tearing this church apart and he still loved these dear saints. And he longed that they would find their identity and their security and their confidence in the grace of Jesus Christ alone. Here's some of the reasons for thankfulness that Paul gives. Some of these are little spoiler alerts, by the way. He's weaving into some of his thanksgiving here things that he knows that he needs to address a little bit later. It's still worth focusing them on them briefly, though. First and foremost, Paul is grateful for grace, right? He leads with that, for the grace of God that was given to you. The Corinthians, just like we are, would be completely lost without God's grace. They weren't required to earn Paul's favour, just as they weren't required to earn their salvation. They didn't need to perform for Paul's approval, just as they weren't required to perform for God's approval. Grace had been given to these believers in Christ, and that was enough for their salvation, and it was enough for their sanctification, and it was enough to fuel Paul's thanksgiving for them. Despite what was happening, right? The first thing that Paul knows about these people is that God had poured grace out on them. And Paul said, for that, I will give thanks every day of my life. I think as we read further, you'll see that the Corinthians had well, let's say foolishly, began looking for ways to become spiritually enriched. And they did it in a number of different ways. We're going to explore more of them in weeks ahead. But one of the first things that Paul's going to address in the, in the coming weeks is that they were, they were working hard to become spiritually enriched. They wanted to become super Christians. And they pursued that by all sorts of means, right? One of them was... Um, Superior gifting. Who had the best gifts? Are there best gifts? That's something that they were chasing pretty hard. There were certain spiritual gifts in the church that they perceived if you had that gift, that would make you some type of super Christian. And so let's everyone make sure that you are working hard to get that gift. And if you didn't have that gift, well, maybe you need to question whether you know Jesus at all. Superior gifting. They were pursuing superior acts of service, things that were usually public, 
that everyone could see. Then they were pursuing superior association with better or celebrity preachers. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I'm of Peter. And then I'm, some guy just goes, well, I'm, I'm just of Jesus, mate. That's, you know. They were trying to find their worth and their identity and their confidence in all sorts of places, but it wasn't in grace. But here, Paul is grateful. In the opening letters, he says that his friends were enriched in Christ in every way that there was possible already. All by grace. The third thing he's thankful for, as you read through those um, verses from verse 4 down, the church in Corinth had become dangerously competitive. In the, in the church in Corinth, there had developed a sort of cutthroat Christianity where classes of Christians had sprung up. The super-Christian. The, the, we might say, the, oh, they're, they're mature. They're the mature believers. Oh, they're... They're new believers, or they're. We, and, and they were starting to classify Christianity, right? And formalize it. But here, Paul expresses his thankfulness that God was at work in Corinth, despite all the mess, despite the toxic culture that was, that was festering there. And despite it all, grace means that God would see the Corinthians through to the end. He points it out as he goes through this. He says, listen, it's for everyone who calls on the name of Jesus. Both their Lord, your Lord. He will strengthen you. If God is at work, he will strengthen you. God was at work. Grace was at work. And God would see the Corinthians through to the end. It will be God that strengthens and with that strength, not our strength, we will stand blameless, Paul says. The Corinthians will stand blameless. We will stand blameless before our Saviour on the day that we meet Jesus face to face. Why does this matter for us? Why does that matter for us? I want you to go back and have a look at verse 2 for a moment, just in case you're thinking, well, this letter's really just, you know, this very specifically for something that was going on in Corinth. Wouldn't be like that here. Have a look at what Paul writes there. To the church of God at Corinth, to those sanctified in Jesus Christ, called as saints, with all those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both their Lord and ours. This letter, written and sent to Corinth, is in fact a letter written and sent to us. You and I are counted among the, those in every place who call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. We need to pay attention to this letter. I think the last two years has revealed something significant about our understanding of church. How we meet, when we meet, who we are, 
what we've been called to be in our communities have all been called into question during the COVID crisis, right? There have been no shortage of opinions aired. There's also been friendships that have fractured in the last two years. Seen leadership faltering in churches. Our assumptions about church have been rocked in the last couple of years. And yet, we've also seen new ministry opportunities appear. We've seen the church gathering in new ways around the broken and the hurting. We've seen care for the lonely. I've seen people laying aside their personal rights for the benefits of others. In short, our ideas about what it means to be the church have been challenged by our circumstances in the last couple of years. This is the perfect time for us to fix our eyes back on God's Word, to a letter which addresses what does it mean for a church to find its identity in Christ. This is the perfect time for us to spend some considerable time in this letter. But for today, I really only have two things I want you to take from this opening week of what is going to be a long series. Number one is this. I want you to hear this this morning as best as you can. You are more than the sum of your performances. What I mean is you are more than the list of failures that you rehearse in your head on a daily basis. And you are certainly more than the victories that you've accomplished also. You are more than the sum of your performance. The church in Corinth was a mess, right? We can pretty it up as much as you like. You can put lipstick on a pig and at the end of the day, all you've got is a pig wearing lipstick. (laughs) The church in Corinth was a mess. But what Paul encourages them with isn't attached or dependent on what they'd done, but who they were. He didn't say, here are all your failures, you complete losers, get your act together. He will address sin and he will call it by name. But he begins by saying, this is not what you've done, but this is who you are. The grace of the gospel transforms encouragement from performance-based, performance-based encouragement to identity-based encouragement. Paul's encouragement, did you notice, wasn't about anything that they had done and everything about what God had done and who they were because of that. That was where Paul's encouragement sits. So this morning, I need you to hear, you are who God says you are. You are not the sum of your performances whether they be 
poor in your opinion or whether you're proud of them in your opinion. Your identity does not rest in what you have done, but who God has created you to be in Christ. You are who God says you are in Christ. So that's the first thing. You are more than the sum of your performances. Here's the last thing that I want you to hear this morning or take from this Thanksgiving. If God encourages like this, shouldn't we? Right? Whether that's applied to your parenting, whether that's applied to your workplace, to your relationships, to your friendship groups, to your social settings. So often, I started to sit down and consider how I encourage people. Now, I think encouragement, well, it, we're going to get to it in this letter. I think encouragement is a spiritual gift. Right? There are some people who are uniquely shaped by God, supernaturally who are just, encouragement just oozes out of them, right? But for those of you who, like me, sit there and just go, I'm not sure that I got that gift, all right? I don't think I'm a gifted encourager. That doesn't mean that we have the right to be just jerks or rude. Every spiritual gift that someone has is also an expectation for every believer. There are people who are going to be spiritually tuned, uh, spiritually gifted in hospitality. It doesn't mean that everybody else is off the hook. We should all be hospitable people. The Bible commands us to be that. There are spiritually gifted evangelists. God uses them in supernatural ways to speak good news into people's lives. And we just look at them and say, man, what a gifted evangelist. But guess what? Every single one of us are asked to be testimonies of and speak the truth about the Word of God. We're all called to be evangelists. There are people who are gifted Bible teachers, but the Bible also says when you come together, encourage one another and exhort one another in the Word. We are all called to be Bible teachers, all of us. So there are people who are spiritually gifted to be encouragers, but all of us should be speaking words of encouragement to each other. All the time. Which then challenged me because I started thinking, how often is my encouragement based on what has someone has done? Whether that's to my children. Hey, I really like how you did that. I think that you're fantastic. Good job. Is that a bad thing to say? I don't think so. That's good, right? If you see someone doing something in this church and you want to encourage them for it, I'm not saying this morning, oh, Chris said... Don't encourage people on performance-based encouragement. So I won't say anything, all right? Please, I'm not saying that. But what I'm asking us to do as a church, is there a way that we can take encouragement to the next level? So it's not just about performance. It's not just about, I see something really good that you did, so therefore now I come and pat you on the back and say, what a good job, I'm so glad. What if our encouragement started to take the form that Paul's encouragement took, which is, hey, I noticed this thing about you about who you are, about your character, about what I've seen as a pattern in your life. And I want to let you know that I'm a better Christian today because you're in my life. We, we start to move our encouragement from just performance-based encouragement to identity-based encouragement. Now, believe me, it's nice 
It really is nice when someone comes up and says, Chris, I really liked that sermon today. I think you did a great job. Marty, you did a great job last week, mate. I was blessed by how you presented God's word to us. But more than that, I was blessed because I've seen that same character in your life. Now, I'm not just using that as a way of personal you know, encouragement or as an object lesson or something, but, but I've been encouraged to sort of sit down and from this passage alone to go, how can I be looking at people differently? So it's not just about their performance, but about who they are, who they are in Christ, and then tell them that, all right? We Aussies are pretty, we're pretty um, reserved people in general. Like, oh, we don't want to go up and we don't want to give them a big head, you know? Oh, we don't want to puff them up. Man, I think we are far, far away from worrying about people getting the problem with pride. Maybe we need a little bit more of this, hey? Just to sit down beside someone and say, hey, I've noticed something about who you are. And I want you to know, God's at work in your life. And despite the challenges that are going on, despite the, the list of faults that you might rehearse in your head, God's got this. He's strengthening you. He'll see you through to the end. Imagine how we'd all walk out of church a little bit or, or walk out of a coffee you know, with a friend or a phone call or a text message if, if we were speaking those sorts of words to each other on a regular basis. Verse 10, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Let me give you a hint of where Paul's changing gears. He gets nine verses into this long letter. Verse 10. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree in what you say, that there be no division among you. All right, get ready. Next week, Paul's going to sit back and go, radio. I know who you are in Christ. I give thanks for it. But the gospel must work its way out in how we live with each other. And some of the divisions amongst us is where Paul's going. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for our time that we've shared this morning, the opportunity to worship, to remember, to, to give uh, reflection and testimonies about what you've been saying to us and what you've been encouraging us during the week. Thank you for the way that our church has gathered around each other and reminded all of us about the hope that we find in Christ. I thank you also for this letter that Paul has sent to us via Corinth. Lord, help us to hear his words. More importantly, Spirit of God, take the words that you gave him and drive them into our hearts. Thank you that we are who you say we are, that our identity is secure in Christ. Lord, help us to speak those same sorts of words to each other. Help our encouragement to be based in our identity, not just our performance. We need your help in this, Lord. We weak, we fail, and yet we are still yours. Amen.